Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. This is New Books and Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in Miami. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jameson Webster, author of the book, Conversion Disorder, Listening to the Body in Psychoanalysis, published in 2019 by Columbia University Press. Jameson is a psychoanalyst in New York. She's written for Art Forum, Cabinet, The Guardian, The New York Times, and Playboy. Her books include The Life and Death of Psychoanalysis, published in 2011, and Stay, Illusion, with Simon Critchley, published in 2013. Welcome, Jameson, to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. I want to start with how you would describe what this book is about. And I don't mean this as some kind of basic question as I'm writing some book report, but rather because it seems to me to be about lots of things, about what psychoanalysis is and is not, about what it means to be a psychoanalyst, but also very much about what it means to be a patient and how the body figures in the whole psychoanalytic enterprise. What do you say? (laughs) It's true that the book has this kind of incredible range. I sometimes feel badly for the readers because they, um, I imagine at least that they think that they're about to read a book specifically on conversion disorder and specifically on the question of bodily illness. And it's, um, it certainly is about that, but it, it takes it as a jumping off point for so many other ideas. Um, and the reason for that is that uh, while I wanted to write about the body uh, as something incredibly important to what it means to listen to patients, I also found in the term conversion, um, I don't know, just like a whole history of psychoanalysis because... Um, It was actually the original main term that Freud wanted to use for the question of hysteria. And hysteria was obviously his first patients, and it's on the basis of those patients that he invented the idea of the unconscious. So there seemed to be something about even the very invention of analysis that needed to turn on this strange term. And the term itself, of course, is about the way in which something psychic can become bodily. But it was actually much more than that in Freud. It was about the capacity of the mind to kind of move psychic energy from one sphere of the mind to another in some radical way, which changed the entire structure of the psyche. And for him, this was critical because this became the kind of symptom par excellence that made somebody analyzable. Because if you can move something from one sphere of the mind to the other, if you can take the whole kind of entire energic investment, let's say in a trauma or in a memory or in like a conflict, and you can transpose it somewhere else, then it has two spheres of meaning that connect to one another. And by virtue of that, somehow you have to then speak about what's going on in order to reconnect those two spheres. Um, And I then wanted to connect this to the fact that in the history of psychiatry, 
Um, we got rid of the term hysteria, which disappeared from the DSM in the 1980s. But the strange term conversion disorder remains pointing, you know, obviously to this kind of transformational structure, but also the history of psychoanalysis itself and the way it's tied into questions about the body. Um, so that was my jumping off point was to do a kind of little investigation in this history. But I also then, you know, realized that the term conversion has a long religious history. It has a history in science in terms of chemistry. It has a mathematical history. Conversion is very important term for understanding certain ways of thinking mathematically. Um, so I started playing around <laughs> with all of that. Um, and then finally, I think one of the other important questions in the book is, you know, if, if we put this at the very beginning of, I don't know, the invention of psychoanalysis, then I, I also use it to interrogate what's gone wrong in analysis, um, which, you know, by which I mean the kind of institution of analysis, the way that we train analysts, um, what has gone wrong or what still needs to be done in that realm because um, the institution to a certain extent, I think has failed to live up to what psychoanalysis wanted it to be. So I was sort of saying it was a failed conversion on the part of psychoanalysis itself. Can you say more about that, about what you feel has gone wrong with psychoanalysis or the, or its institution? Well, the one place that I really kind of hone in on it is that Lacan says that a conversion, a real transformation needs to take place in the analyst in relationship to knowledge. Because if we're talking about the fact that we work with unconscious knowledge, if we work with something like the body that, you know, what can you know about a body? Um, you have to create the conditions for the body to speak. It's not really about the knowledge on the analyst. That the analyst is really someone who just holds a situation that allows something to unfold that you never know how it's going to unfold or what that's going to look like, but just that some kind of transformational process needs to happen. Then it's not really a knowledge. It's not like a knowledge that you apply to the patient. Um, which is often the problem, by the way, with psychosomatic disorders is that, you know, a patient comes in and we go, oh, you know, you're really sick. I mean, you're really actually not sick. <laughs> you're sick in the head, but you're not sick in your body. And that's not true. I mean, from the very beginning, there's an ambiguity in Freud. You're actually really sick in the body. And that's what's incredible is that even if it has a connection into the mind, something real can happen to the body. And how those two things interact, how they come alive in a treatment, how they transform is always something that, um, you know, you, you don't know how that's going to take place. And the one thing I saw within the analytic institution is that it dispenses pre-digested knowledge. And the analyst always seems to be often in the position of an expert of some kind, you know, with a precious theory, with a certain way of viewing patients and, um, Lacan said that if this is the case, then psychoanalysis is kind of dead in the water. So I was using the kind of most radical point, which is the fact that we work with the body and a body in and of itself is not something knowable and something that's only very difficult to, to manifest in speech as a way of pointing to some of these failures. I'm thinking about what you're saying regarding the analyst's relationship to knowledge, because as you talk about in the book, many patients who call us, particularly those who are not analysts, um, and especially those who are not mental health professionals at all, or maybe have never even seen a mental health professional, they often come to us expecting that we do know something. And not only that we know something, but we know how to apply 
the something that we know to their benefit. What you're suggesting is a relationship to knowledge that's very different from that. So I'm wondering, kind of in real life, how are you, how do you struggle with this? How do you work this out for yourself when you encounter such patients who, who need you to, to know something and to help them and to, and to maybe even give right. them something? I mean, I, there's lots of little kind of case vignettes throughout the book that I think circle around precisely this problem. And um, I think the beginning of the book is filled with a kind of despair sometimes that other therapies or even psychoanalysts, you know, must believe that they do know and have something kind of concrete and solid to give and how on shaky ground I feel if I believe analysis to kind of unfold in the way that I'm talking about. Um, but then I also use it as a way of then flipping that kind of melancholic response into a kind of enthusiasm because, you know, we're not refrigerator repairmen. If we were just doing the same thing over and over again, I think our job would be incredibly boring. And I think it would be disrespectful to the absolute individ individuality of every single patient and what there is to discover with them. Um, and, you know, I, I do say that there is something of a almost kind of game in the beginning in which you have to welcome the incredible desire and demand on the part of the patient that you, that you know something. And I, I know this as a, as a analyst, they come in and they sometimes interrogate you or they ask you what their diagnosis is, or they want you to give them feedback. Um, you know, and they also kind of, even anticipate the games of the quote unquote psychoanalyst who's going to turn the question back on them. But it's a beginning moment in which you're waiting for, you know, I would even say the first mini conversion where they find out that it's not so much you weighing in on their problems or telling them what to do or telling them what you think, but realize in the act of speaking with you and interacting with you that they come to say something incredibly powerful and surprising and that this process itself starts to make them feel better or make things change in their life. Um, you know, and, and in the very beginning, it's a strange, um, you know, Freud called it a chess match, but it's also a waiting game to find out, you know, whether you can make it to this moment before the frustrations over the demand that you know something um, get the better of them. And, you know, at the end of the day, while that sounds like a kind of precarious beginning, I haven't had the experience that the demand that I know something gets the better of a patient, even though I sometimes have a lot of anxiety um, about it. I always find that, you know, what needs to take place takes place if you let it happen. But that's the thing. It's like you're saying you, your job then is to, if I'm hearing you right, to create and maintain the conditions for that something to happen and I imagine that involves managing your own anxiety. Um, and yet it also sounds like you're saying the demand, your anxiety about it, that's all, that shouldn't not happen. That's, that's part of how it has to begin. Yes. Am, am I hearing yeah, you right? Absolutely. Lacan said, you know, uh, you above know, all. There's a quote at the beginning of the book. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, he was, he was saying above all else, an analyst has to have a converted experience in relationship to their own anxiety, which doesn't mean that you don't have anxiety, but you understand that anxiety is just the signal that you're moving into the unknown and towards essentially truth. I, 
about that anxiety, I, I liked a particular line at the beginning of the book um, in which you, I think you're, you capture how maybe you ins- instruct patients to, to talk. You say, the only way I can deal with their anxiety, that is the patients, is not to talk about it, but to try and talk. This sort of hit me between the eyes. What do you mean by this? <laughs> um, it's cool. I like it. <laughs> I'm glad that it hit you between the eyes. That's very interesting. Um, you know, if you if you talk sometimes, especially with anxiety, because anxiety becomes really a discourse that's caught in itself. I mean, if if anyone's worked with people with severe anxiety disorders, they talk and talk and talk and talk about the anxiety really without getting anywhere. And there's something about creating a cut, which is, you know, let's just try to speak. We don't need to speak about the symptom of anxiety. Let's try to speak. And it's the hardest thing for them, to be honest. I mean, a lot of what the anxiety is doing is keeping speech trapped in a certain domain of kind of anticipation and, you know, fear um, without really speaking about what's on their mind. Uh, so there's a, there's a way in which you have to find the way to bracket the anxiety and speak, which is interesting because it's already what the analyst is doing themselves. What, what do you mean by that? That it's already what the analyst is doing themselves? I, you know, I think as analysts, a lot of what we do is we're trying to bracket our anxiety. I mean, think of working, for example, with a quote unquote borderline patient. They make you very anxious in terms of their aggressivity, in terms of maybe the chaos of their lives. And the best thing that you can do for that patient is not to get anxious because the minute that they see you anxious, then they're <laughs> they're really angry because um, you're also showing them that you're afraid of them or you're showing them that you're, you know, uncertain and they don't like that. Um, so we're, we're always with patients trying to master a certain level of anxiety that can come up. And, you know, also Freud talked about the resistance simply to the unconscious that like when we're closer to the unconscious, when we're closer to the quote unquote pathological nucleus, we're going to feel anxiety. I had a supervisor. She's, um, one of my first supervisors when I was in graduate school. And she said, you always know that it's the right interpretation because you're afraid of making it. So that there's something necessarily scary about saying that which is most true in a moment. Yes, I think that's true. And I think you feel it in your body. You feel almost like a, in your body, like a, like a rising of your heart rate or some, even like, like a kind of force. Um, because if the truth is, truth is scary. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if you have an answer to this question, but I, maybe you do, or maybe you struggle with it. What then is analytic cure from your point of view? Oh, that's the most difficult. Okay. Question. Skip it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I guess, you know, in, in the, in the, book, I, I say that, you know, there's some way in which the question of conversion for me, which is this kind of radical transformation, um, gives us a model for what it might look like. That's incredibly formal, but without content, because I worry about the content based, you know, versions of cure. So they say like, Oh, someone's gone through a process of mourning. Oh, someone's gone through a process of acceptance. Oh, someone's gone through a process of, whatever self-realization and you know we start to sound like hallmark cards and i don't know how you apply this to 
everybody. And there's something really unique that I think happens in every treatment. Um, but this idea that at the beginning of a treatment, there was a conversion that made one suffer and created symptoms. And I think at the end of a treatment, there's a conversion that happens differently that maybe makes someone suffer less and have more pleasure in their life. And that when we look at the way that many conversions happen in the treatment, when we look at the structure of conversion, even when we look at the idea of conversion religiously, because the religious uh, version of conversion is that what was before is no longer, and there's a whole new kind of reconfiguration, right? Like that's the kind of bolt of lightning religious transformation. I don't think this is wrong for psychoanalysis also, but I don't think that we can say what that looks like. But do, do can you say the general parameters um, around which this conversion happens? You know, again, for someone listening to us talk, talking now who knows nothing about psychoanalysis or, or psychology, they're hearing about treatment involving some kind of conversion on their part. They might be wondering, well, like, what does, what does that mean? Con- what do I have to convert? Um, and, and I'm also even thinking about like, how do they not hear that as, as a synonym for indoctrination or something like that? <laughs> no, no, it's not indoctrination at all. I was just using the fact that there's this history. And by the way, you know, psychoanalysis took over in the turn of the century when it's the moment that the, I don't know, the sort of weight and authority of religiosity was losing itself, which doesn't mean that we don't need some, we don't need the therapies, for example, to take the place of the, that religion was losing. So And I I don't completely separate it from it because I think it's within a history of people needing to find a way to change their lives. Um, So it's not indoctrination, but to go back to the original Freudian definition, it's the, he called, he calls conversion the aptitude for transposing large quantities of energy from one sphere of the mind to the other. Now, I think that this happens many, many times over the course of a treatment, but I also wonder if there's not some kind of more radical transformation at the very end in which the mind reconfigures itself. And if, you know, if you wanted to go back to old, more classical psychoanalytic ideas, this is what they called structural change. So it's not, it's not symptom reduction, right? It's not that you get away. It's not that you change a symptom. It's not even like, oh, I'm, I'm happy now. I'm in a different affective state. It's that there's a real structural change that takes place in, in the mind. So in the book, you refer to patients having to, well, patient and analysts, I guess, having to tolerate what you call a discordance of time. Um, that is the idea that change or growth will come later. Maybe. We'll see right? Um, and as analysts, we have a much easier time understanding this idea than our patients. Um, but if I can get concrete for a moment, what, again, what's it like for you when someone comes to you who needs help urgently? And, and how do you talk to them, not just about this notion of, of um, what they might expect in the form of a, a change or conversion, but also how do you deal with this notion that they may have to wait, that, that this is going to take time and that you don't even know how long it will take or at what pace it will proceed. Um, 
I was just reading this book yesterday by this um, Italian sociologist. This is like an aside named Lazzarato. And it's, um, it's about, I think it's called governing by debt. <laughs> it's, it's a sociological book about the world, but he was talking about just, you know, kind of late capitalism, actually, you know, where everything is kind of controlled by finance and finance is about the fact that money always has to make money. And so we're always, in a, we're always in a relationship of debt at this point, we're almost born into debt of which the greatest example, of course, in America is the fact that everyone who goes to school, like walks out with massive amounts of debt. It's crazy. But he talked about this in terms of the idea that like our time really doesn't belong to us in a new way. Because time actually belongs to money. Um, and if we're born into this condition, we're always born into a condition in which we don't own time. And I, I was thinking about patients because they're on the same kind of crazy rapid clock of like, got to get this done, got to fix this, you know, can't spend too much time here. And I always love this, um, this sociologist. It's funny, they're both sociologists. Philip Reef said that he love psychoanalysis because in a world where um where time is money right all of your time is time in which you could be making money psychoanalysis takes money and it transforms it back into time and Lazzarato at the end of this book said that he really felt like we needed a new relationship to time that if this is the one thing that is really being stolen from us in the way that the world is working at this point we need to find a new relationship to time and I immediately thought you know like of a lot of what I talked about in the book but just in general I, I think that this is what we're doing with patients we're trying to create a new relationship that they have to time you know, whether it's the urgency of a kind of hysteric or the the too slowness of an obsessional, we're trying to shake up their relationship to time, which is obviously going to play out in the demands with the analysts. I mean, patients come with all kinds of demands about time. You know, we're not fixing this. Last week I came here. I don't want to do this. Now you're going out of town. You know, there's like, there's always a complaint about time. And um, I also got very interested in um, some of the early ways in which Freud talked about patients where he says at a certain moment in treatment, it's as if the symptom or the symptomatic structure of the patient, like something about their symptomatic way of being, which has a temporal quality, enters into the analysis and becomes the rhythm of the analysis itself, where he says then it can unfold almost rhythmically, musically, and that the two of you join in a conversation through this rhythm. And he says, this is the architecture of the symptom, which becomes the architecture of the treatment itself, which at that point, it's on the way towards being able to move towards termination, um, which I thought was so beautiful. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't heard anyone kind of pick this up on, in him from um, his really early writings. I mean, people talk about the fact that he says that the symptom joins the conversation, but the idea that it forms a kind of architecture and temporal rhythmic structure um, that's almost close to musical, I thought was so beautiful. Um, do you find it to be the case in, in your own work? I do. I do. And I do, especially when it's in analysis, meaning that the patient comes more regularly, whereas I think the once a week treatment feels like staccato. <laughs> and atonal and maddening um, because, you know, you're playing catch up with the patient's week and you never really get into a rhythm with each other. It's so hard. 
Whereas, you know, I mean, everyone's like, oh, God, analysis, why do you have to come so often? But there is something about it that allows this rhythmic structure to take place. And also that the urgency and demands about solving concrete problems in reality versus what can happen when you're just speaking with one another is precisely this rhythm. And when a patient gives themselves over to this, I mean, we in classical psychoanalytic terms call this like mid-phase treatment. <laughs> or late mid-phase treatment, um, which is actually, you know, meaning that you're moving towards the later phase. It is like this. They just come in and they start speaking and, and you know, you can let the thing unfold more organically. And, you know, they're also having a really good time at that point as to a lot of what's taking place before. It doesn't mean that they don't suffer. It doesn't mean that there's not incredible urgencies and crises in their lives, but they allow the treatment to hold it. Um, and it's a great moment when you can sit back as an analyst. And, and that makes me think about um, something else that I wanted to talk with you about. I want, I want to use your titular word here to talk about a phenomenon that was talked about a lot, at least when I was in training. And it has to do with, quote unquote, converting a psychotherapy patient into an analytic one. Like, as you were just describing, the, the once a week patient, perhaps into someone who comes more frequently. Um, given the impossibility of satisfying a patient's demand for knowledge or cure from us, I wonder how you feel about an analyst attempting such a conversion consciously, like trying, like, like, I don't know if this ever happened when you were in training, but sort of picking a patient in, in your practice and saying, oh, I think, I think this person would be really great as an analytic patient, let me see if I can, you know, convert this patient. I mean, it's interesting because I don't, um, people, you know, think that there's no analytic patients. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a lot of analytic patients means I accept lower fees, but (laughs) that's that's how it works. People don't realize that being an analyst means you actually make less money. Um, which is fine because I love doing analysis. Um, but you know, when I worked at different clinics, different psychoanalytic clinics, they had very, very strange ways of doing it. You know, like a patient would come for intake and they'd say, oh, you really need analysis. You have to come five days a week, of which case the patient usually went running for the hills. Uh, You know, or someone at a certain point after so many months of psychotherapy would say, you know, I really think that you need to be in analysis, which 70% of the time went very badly. (laughs) Um, you know, you're really sick and we're not going to get to this problem (laughs) unless you come all the time. I don't, this is not how I learned to do it. I mean, maybe as the French analyst, but you're looking for a moment in which the patient addresses you somehow about the question of analysis. Oftentimes, fascinatingly, it comes up around the couch. So they're sitting in the chair, they're coming to treatment, they see this couch. On my couch in particular, you can see the indent of the patient's head. Um, the couch is pretty center stage in any analytic office. And, you know, I don't know, it's usually at a very key moment where some question they're addressing, maybe some dream, some transference comes up that they ask about it. They ask a little naively, like, what's going on there? Why would someone lie down? And I think they're asking at that point for you to tell them, you know, what analysis is. And so I find that they very naturally make their way onto the couch. I mean, they're very curious about it, especially if they've had an experience in 
quote unquote psychotherapy that um, has been transformative for them. I, I think what's really cool about your book is that it's it's as much about the patient experience as the analysts. And I think that you're quite open in the book with your own struggle with the profession, but also with, with being an, al- an analyst. And you say, as, as others have said before, that the profession of psychoanalysis feels impossible to you. What do you mean by that? Oh my God, on so many levels. <laughs> the first level is that I have to sit all day long, which I somehow managed not to think about when I was in graduate school. I mean, you know, you're in graduate school, you don't get to see that many patients or you're working in a hospital, you're running around, but you don't realize that like when you're in private practice, you're going to sit six, seven hours a day. So that feels literally impossible to me. Um, the other is the institution itself. I mean, the institution of analysis drives me bananas. Um, I don't understand why a group of people who are so incredibly smart and so incredibly keyed into uh, how the mind works when they get together, they act so abominably. Um, and also the ways in which we failed the, the future generation in my estimation. Um, I think it's very hard to be an analyst at this point. I mean, first of all, you have to go through training in some other degree for a very long time, whether it's an MD, a PhD, an LCSW, um, and whatnot, before you then go into analytic training. Um, and analytic training, I find I miserable in all kinds of ways. So, you know, the, you have to have a real passion for this field and you have to have a passion for it in a time that doesn't appreciate it very much. So I find that impossible. I mean, that you have to rest on your desire to be an analyst because you're not going to get recognition. You're not going to get monetary compensation and you're going to have to be in school for a very long time. And you're going to have to be infantilized as like a near adult with an advanced degree um, to get through your analytic training. To get deeper about it, um, you have to use your own unconscious, you have to use your own blind spots, you have to use your own symptoms um, in order to listen, and you have to listen against them, with them, through them, and that's very, very hard work. On top of a lot of the things that I talk about in the book is that you have to live uh, with so many people. You have to live with them inside of you and you have to live with them on the deepest level. And you have to carry that around with you. I mean, we have ways of putting work aside when we're not at work, but it's not as if you're not carrying 20 lives at a certain time. Um, and I think also at the in the way in which you carry these lives, you carry moments of of trying to transform them without knowing if, how, when they will be transformed. Um, so there's like an impossible waiting almost that you're, you're always living within. Do you have suggestions or, or even a fantasy about how analytic training or, or how more broadly the formation of a, of a psychoanalyst um, can best happen in order to facilitate this conversion um, in the relationship to knowledge you talked about earlier. Right. And and to help the conversions on the part of the patient. Um, And so much of what I was talking about means that you have to uh, have a transformed relationship to what Freud and other uh, psychoanalysts call desire. 
the desire is neither need nor is it demand. It's about, you know, being able to live kind of with the intensity of, of wish, essentially. I mean, we wish for our patients to get better. We don't know how or when, but we have to, we have to keep that wish alive. Um, another word would be hope and courage, which I play around in the book is more kind of colloquial terms, but we have to have a transformed relationship to desire. I found psychoanalytic training, absolutely desire killing. (laughs) Really? How so? I mean, as an undergraduate, I went to these nice little liberal arts schools where we got to choose what we studied and we got to just like explore and teachers treated you with respect and it was about discussion and, you know, there was kind of an openness. When I got into training, it was like five years of this and 900 hoops that I had to get through. And um, anytime you made a complaint, you had a transferential problem to the authority of the Institute. I mean, I just found like they were beating me over the head with a hammer And, you know, like Kernberg wrote a paper, you know, 30 ways to kill the creativity of of candidates about the psychoanalytic institute. So it's a problem that they're well aware of, and yet they don't have a structure that supports the desire of candidates. Um, So I think that we need to do that. Um, And we also need to understand, you know, what it is to begin to see patients and the analytically and the kind of intensity of that work. I mean, you're in analysis, you're seeing patients multiple times a week, you're in these, um, you know, really intense supervisions, because you talk about one patient with one supervisor, um, every single week for however many years, and uh, do the best to support people in terms of what they want to know, and the experiences that they want to have in that process in an open way. I mean, why put them through so many military exercises during that period of time? So with all that we have to go through, why do you love being a psychoanalyst? (laughs) I didn't love what I had to go through. I mean, I love the patients and I love the work, but I don't love the training. Um, I, I... I can't, I mean, I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, I, I love the unconscious. I mean, I love the way in which it surprises you. I love the language. I mean, when a patient really starts talking, what unfolds before your eyes is a miraculous. And I don't think that these are the kind of conversations that you have in everyday life. In everyday life, we chat and we, you know, we like tell stories to each other, but it's not this radical form of speaking. And to be able to provide the conditions for that is for me, um, I I am so grateful. It's it's like a miracle. We can't have this conversation without mentioning Lacan. Uh, Obviously, he's he's a big influence on you. And he's mentioned quite a bit in the book. Um, For people who don't know, is there a way for you to... um, in a nutshell, tell us who he is and why why he matters so much to you. Um, well, he was he's he's the kind of predecessor predecessor. He's the he he's the person who returned to Freud um, and wanted us to see that what psychoanalysis had turned Freud into was something really banal, and to reinvigorate a reading of Freud that showed how radical um, and strange and surreal and um, revolutionary Freud was. And I really think he did it. I do not think that there's another post-Freudian theorist who read Freud quite in this way and made it such an impact that he did. 
Um, and it's also why, um, you know, sort of after he did this with Freud, Freud really turned into something else. I mean, he turned into someone who was like one of the most important ways of looking at film. He turned into someone who gave feminists an entirely new reading of psychoanalysis, which they had otherwise hated at that point. Um, he's at the heart of a lot of really important queer theory. Um, he's even at the heart of some radical race studies. Um, if you think of someone like Franz Fanon, he was part of an entire turning point in philosophy in continental Europe. I mean, they took Lacan, they did something with him in order to rethink some of the sort of main philosophical questions about what is a subject, what is truth, what is reality. And he would say that this wasn't him, that this was his finding this in Freud. Um, and so he really transformed that for me, but that's kind of a more academic question. The other thing that he does is that he says all of his work was aimed at speaking to clinicians. It was speaking to people who have a certain experience of working with patients. And even though he doesn't often kind of straightforwardly talk about clinical examples or real life ways of um, working with patients, because he's always a little bit on a theoretical edge. I do find that whenever I'm reading him, it changes my way of listening to patients. It's as if, it's as if it like, I don't know, turns you at a right angle and makes you, you know, able to hear something new. And I don't know how he does this. He does this through this just strange way in which he had about writing or speaking or thinking. Um, you know, and his main insight was that the fact that we speak, the fact that we are speaking beings is like an anomaly in the history of the world. <laughs> animals, animals don't speak, but human beings speak. And what this has done to us, to our bodies, to our minds, to our relationship to the world cannot be underestimated. And, you know, of course, at this point, you realize that what we do as psychoanalysts is that we change the body, the mind, the world simply by the fact of speaking. And that we have to see how strange and how radical this is. I mean, all the neuroscience stuff these days shows that therapy changes the structure of the brain. We're not doing it with medication. We're not doing it with an operation. We're doing it simply by meeting someone in a room and speaking with them, which I think is just so cool. <laughs> Maybe patients don't understand the power of I don't want to say their speech is because it's not about the content, but the power of their speaking. Yeah. And, no. and that's like, that's a kind of curiosity that we need to maybe foster. I mean, I think it would be the most important PR <laughs> mechanism we could have. And um, one that we don't, we don't use enough. Um, it's that it's really simply the power of speaking to someone who has been trained for a very long time. I mean, this is the other thing I think we need to tell people is that you could have a degree in mental health counseling. It takes you two years to become a psychoanalyst. It takes what, 15, Eugenio? I, I don't know. I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we spent 15 I'm getting there. learning how to listen, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, you know, the book is really great. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. Uh, we're, we're almost out of time, but I didn't want to end without giving you a chance to tell us what you're working on now or what you've got coming up next. Oh my gosh. Um, 
I'm so tired. After this book and a whole number of other projects, I just um, I, I got really, really tired. I, last year, I think I was um, doing speaking gigs like two, three times a month. So I feel totally burned out. So after this book was published and I did um, you know, some of the taking care of it that one has to do after you publish a book, I thought I'm going to take a little break. But that doesn't mean that I don't have. But <laughs> doesn't mean that I don't have something in on my mind for. I'm not sure when I'm going to come out of hibernation, which is. Um, I want to. I want to talk. The book actually ends with a case study of mine with someone who lost a child, um, and I think it was the hardest part of the book to write. Um, and I, I think I want to follow up on that in terms of the question of the life and death vicissitudes of sexuality. I mean, I think that there isn't um, a point more in people's life in which somehow the question of the, I don't know, the extreme, like sexuality can bring you to a place where life and death become a question. Um, so, you know, and, and it also has a lot to do with women and the fact that women live with miscarriages and abortions and all kinds of questions about their body and their fertility, something that's becoming more and more prominent that I've been listening to in patients that um, I think I want to spend some time thinking about, so, like through the lens of sexuality. Through the lens, through the lens of sexuality. I mean, obviously, you know, psychoanalysis is obsessed with the fact that sexuality is just a huge part of the human constitution. But I want to talk about it more in reality. I mean, the fact that when you face certain aspects of sexuality. Um, the, the real life and death become a question. Even also with disease, I want to go back to AIDS. Um, and, and how these moments have also transformed ways of thinking about, about people. Wow. Well, I, I would read that. (laughs) Well, listen, I want to thank you for coming on the show and for discussing the book and, uh, best of luck with, with hibernating and, and getting some rest in preparation for the next project. Thank you. Thank you.